Welcome to Carrying Wayward, a supernatural podcast for fans who aren't ready to let go and newcomers to the series who are ready to jump in. I'm Marie Vigourou. And I'm Drew Shulman. In this episode, we're diving into Supernatural Season 5, Episode 11, Sam Interrupted. Let's get this show on the road. have to start this episode by saying that we're officially recording from different time zones. This is your first recording session that's taking place across two different provinces in Canada. I have abandoned Mary off in uh, Montreal, Quebec, and I have uh, found myself here in just outside of Halifax, Nova Scotia. If, if you're more geographically on the ball than I am, I'm specifically in Dartmouth, which that's the extent of it. It's, it's a really pretty area. I live right by the water. My first day here, we literally went and sat on the beach and watched people swim in the ocean on Halloween. I'm just only 10% jealous of you guys. <laughs> also, this episode is coming out on December 2nd. So at this point, we can't really guarantee that we can still ship pins to anybody by December 24th. But we can definitely try our darndest. And also, if you don't mind, you can definitely still order. Or let the people in your life know where you can find them at carryingwayward.com. So before we head into the long game, shall we do the one obvious thing that came up during our live watch of this episode was the I didn't know where the name came from. I'm guessing it is about a woman in a asylum similar to the one in this episode and probably a lot of gaslighting takes place. I think that this is a movie that is best watched when you don't really know what's going to happen. Okay, I I can definitely see us putting a watch together, maybe even a live watch with uh, some listeners on the Discord. That could be a fun little uh, activity. That would be fun. I'm ready to jump into this episode a bit, so why don't we go into the long game and you tell me uh, what we need to know about. Can we start with the recap? Oh, we should probably do that, yes, sorry. (laughs) I'm going to count you down. Three, two, one, go. We open on someone speaking to their doctor. They are in an asylum of some sort. They are worried about something in in the hospital that's after them, and clearly we see there is something there. We don't actually see it, but it's made apparent to us. Jump cut to opening title card. Jump cut to Sam and Dean basically checking themselves in under the guise of just telling the truth. Everything from we started the apocalypse to I was in hell and came back to life and fight monsters for a living. Got them locked up pretty darn quick. There's another hunter in there they know who's uh, also checked himself in more legitimately, though. Thinking he has reached the point where he can't do his job anymore. We that have a creature that is killing patients. It turns out it likes patients who are air quotes here, crazy, and it actually makes people more crazy by bringing out things that they have trouble with themselves already, leaving both brothers to learn more about themselves, but ultimately no lesson is learned because Dean basically undoes all that. It's an episode for sure. Despite the poor depiction of these types of scenarios, people in this scenario, this type of world, the the idea of an asylum, people seeking help and that, despite that poor representation, I really like what it does for the brothers and the actual structure of the episode. Oh, for sure. I definitely have thoughts about that that we will get into after the long game. So start us off. Long game. What do we need to know? It's a very short long game, uh, but we do meet Martin, who is a retired hunter who, again, to use his own words, checked himself into the Hotel California, which is a really interesting interpretation for the song. At least in my interpretations of it, never really came off as a insane asylum per se. 
but more of like a final destination. I always kind of depicted it as like a like getting addicted on like to a, it's, it's addiction, isn't it? Isn't the whole point of the song? So a lot of people read it as a song about addiction. The Eagles talked about the song as being about hedonism in um, America and how it's inescapable, essentially. But again, like it gives meaning to a lot of people to think about it as addiction. And I think that in the context of a mental health institution, particularly in settings where mental health institutions are for profit, there's definitely an argument to be made that the song could be read through that lens as well. I sort of just want to highlight that Dean's psychiatrist, who we find out later is a hallucination, right, uh, has uh, dark hair and blue eyes. But we also have another reference to Sam's anger at the end of this episode, which we'll talk about later. And of course, I have to mention the pudding line because that's kind of iconic. You finally saw it. We're all very excited about it. Pudding! And I wish it only existed as an audio cue and a gif because the scene gives it way more detail than it needs. I actually like it less given the context it's put in because it kind of like, it feels like demeaning to people with like, cognitive disorders like it just seems like a a parody of it so it kind of like it sours it a bit but nothing is worse than the incredibly detailed audio of um flapping that is uh accompanying this moment well let's stop flapping around and head into story time <laughs> i can't believe you've done this <laughs> so today our theme is instability And uh, there is a little story behind this because we had originally done a poll uh, with our patrons and supporters while we were watching the episode with them. And we gave them three options. And one of which was like vulnerability, which, you know, I was kind of pretty sure that people were going to go for. And I was like, okay, like that's probably going to be the one, you know, I know my people. Like, (laughs) But then someone suggested instability and instantly like everyone just gravitated towards that one. And with reason, right? So instability it is, because I think it was freaking brilliant. So instability has a Latin root, as so many of our themes do, actually, interestingly. I mean, a lot of the English language has a Latin root. It's like, throwing throw a dart in a dictionary, you're going to hit a Latin word. It comes from instabilis, which means not stable. So like the next question, in my opinion, should be like, where does stabilis come from? And it comes from the Latin stare, which I assume is not stare, because that cannot possibly be how it would be pronounced in Latin. But it does mean to stand. So like quite literally, instability means to like not be able to stand or to be shaky. And it has similar roots to the word stables, you know, where the horses stand. So I think like in this episode, especially with the brothers kind of reeling from their losses of the previous episodes, they're going to find it really hard to like metaphorically stand firm. And they do stumble and have to find ways to be able to cope and to go on. You know, like listening to it, I was like, I don't really get the connection. And like, as you kind of kept going, I kind of tried to tie the, you know, points together a bit better. But yeah, you're right. This episode really like, I think about their ability to kind of like, you know, you think stand firm or their like their mental stability, like this is really testing them. And I was very intrigued and we'll get to it, but to see how, how differently it affects both of them. Yes, I'm really interested to get into that, actually. So you want to start us off with some Dean time? Full disclosure, before I get started, 
I prepped this episode twice. You know the amount of work that I put into those. Like we have full like documents with like thousands, literal thousands of words uh, written in them where I write all my notes. But I basically wrote my notes once and then I rewatched the episode and I, for some reason, heard one line that I had never paid attention to and I rewrote everything. Like everything got rewritten. So let's hope that it was worth it for one line. Can you explain this one line to me and let's get into it? So what I really want us to keep in mind when we're talking about the Wraith and we're talking about Sam and Dean's experience is the moment where she says, I don't make crazy. I just crank up what's already there. You build your own hell, but I give you the Legos. And I think that it's particularly evident when it comes to Dean. Like his hallucination makes him talk about his father, reminds him of all the times that he's failed. Like he's compulsively avoiding the cracks on the floor near the end of the episode. We've seen like all of these things in Dean before. And the Wraith is sort of just using them to make Dean feel unstable. And that's basically what creates his really deep self-doubt and instability in this episode. I mean, with the exception of the um, the, the mistake in the vocabulary, uh, Lego is the plural of Lego. There is no Legos. I'm quoting directly from the from from the episode. <laughs> this entire episode, while it is we're looking at it through the lens of instability, it's the fact that, like the Wraith says, just turning up the dial on what's already there. I mean, we we know Sam and Dean's kind of internal struggles. We know their weaknesses. We've been talking about it for almost two years now. But at the end of the day, it's a chance for them to see it and to really present it a bit, which is so so interesting. And I think the fact they both, again, getting ahead of myself here, they both view it very differently and their reactions to it are very different are what make this episode so weirdly powerful despite its problems. Okay, now, I need to know, what is this one line that had you rewrote the entire episode? Drew, I honestly can't believe that I missed this line for almost 10 years now. But it's the line where he, Dean is thinking about what could be causing all of this. And he's telling Martin, maybe it's the ghost of my dad. That line is literally never explained in the episode. It's entirely a throwaway. And like, Martin tells him, no, Dean, that's not it. Like, he's just very firm, very parental, very calm. From where I stand, it sort of sounds like Dean was also hallucinating John. That means that in the words of the Wraith, Dean's hell includes John. And I'm just going to say this again slowly. Andrew Dabb wrote a line specifically linking John to Dean's personal version of hell. I'm gathering that's very big in some way. Yes, absolutely. Good to know. I mean, this entire episode, like, it is a monument to Dean's failings. This is literally Dean. So Dean is the first one to really, as far as we can tell, be affected by the Wraith. Because Sam really doesn't show any signs until much later on. But Dean really right away, even though it's not apparent to us, uh, you know, he starts seeing this fictional doctor in his mind. Uh, he eventually mistakes the the doctor for a Wraith. It's really, it's, it's he's the one affected first. And Dean is so centered on himself he is so self uh the right word here 
uh, he's so self-sufficient. He's so certain of himself that no matter what scenario he's in, he can always kind of rely on himself. He can always trust himself. So to see himself in a position where he is so at odds with himself, where he is now, you know, forgetting he's losing the trust in himself, and he's sort of bringing up all these, like, deeper, darker feelings, and the first thing he goes to is, maybe it's my dad's ghost. Because this is how John treated them. I I know we're back on the John train here, but this is literally John, you know, instilling the I'm always right, so you can't be that Dean has adopted and now that he can't be right and can't trust himself, he has to assume it's John messing with him in some way. It's being unstable to the point that he can't trust his own senses. It, it literally breaks him. And the idea that John can be so central in his instability really speaks volumes to what John did to him. There you go. And I think that, like, to me, that is the takeaway from this one line. That, like... The memory of John alone is enough to basically help Dean create his own hell, his own personal hell, to use the Wraith's words. Like, it, it felt weird making my notes for this episode because I kept wanting to say this is like, because like, the Wraith uses the term make your own hell. And given that Dean has already faced hell, it feels weird to compare this. So it's almost like I need like a another word. Like, I need like a... An, like an AU hell. <laughs> Wraith hell. Wraith hell. Lego hell. <laughs> the hell metaphor is used in front of Sam, right? Like not in front of Dean. And so like, so yeah, so we don't really get to see Dean react to that and say like, oh, that's not hell. Or like, oh yeah, that is hell. Because like, if he were to say, oh yeah, that's exactly like hell, then honestly, like, that means that in all his years in hell, he'd been seeing John Winchester. Like, oh my God. Torture 101. What 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 tool are you bringing out to screw with Dean that way? Dad is the number one thing to bring out. So. I mean, Alistair does bring up his dad quite a bit, right? When they're talking to each other, so. He literally praises John to piss Dean off because he knows Dean doesn't believe. Anyways, this is a whole other bucket of worms, but... <laughs> you know what no 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 bad me this is a similar bucket of worms which is a weird thing to say we literally have Alistair comparing Dean to John and saying how John is better and here when Dean is actively failing he blames his father because his father instilled these these things in him mm-hmm. I just want to put a little caveat when you say he's failing because I don't think he's failing I think I think he thinks he's failing Correct. Sorry. He thinks he is failing. He thinks he is losing. Right. Exactly. Like he thinks that he cannot trust himself anymore, which maybe he's right. Right. Because he's been poisoned quite literally. I want to, I sort of want to touch on the end of the episode and I'm going to make a really weird uh, detour here because I've been rewatching the Lord of the Rings lately and sort of falling back into that world. And like, there's one moment that really struck me in the fellowship of the ring when they've just lost Gandalf in the mines of Moria and like Aragorn tells uh, Boromir and Legolas to, to get the, get the hobbits on their feet. Uh, you know, we have to go. And Boromir says, give them a moment for pity's sake. Love, love Sean Bean's enunciation on that one. It's and, so good. <laughs> so good. And Aragorn goes, well, we can't do that because like literally in a few hours, the place is going to be swarming with orcs. So I'm paraphrasing, obviously, but I really feel like in this moment, Dean is kind of taking on like the Aragorn role of keeping like 
Hobbit Sam on his feet because he knows that in just a little bit, like they're going to be dealing with much bigger issues like the devil. And like he, he cannot stop to emotionally process this. Like Sam was on the verge of a, we're going to get to Sam in a minute, but like spoiler warning, he was on the verge of a breakthrough, like really figuring something out and really coming to terms with who he was. And Dean stops him. And I understand that in that moment, I don't think Dean is doing it maliciously. I don't think Dean realizes he's doing it. I think Dean is just going to safety mode, which is let's get the F out of here and like deal with what's in front of us right now. Trauma and other shit can wait. You know, our personal growth right now is not the goal. Our goal is living till we see tomorrow. You know, it's that it's that Deanism, which I think is something that John instilled in him, which I think kind of is telling of this episode in like kind of his the instability even after leaving the scenario, even after getting out, he is still in that fight or flight, i.e. the flight mode of this, really. And the end result is these messy moments of really, you know, not realizing he's doing it to Sam, but like screwing Sam over in a way that, you know, if only if only they had a minute. In these moments, I find it hard to extend empathy to Dean because I'm like, just give him a moment. Like, give Sam a moment to talk about this, to think about this. So I guess I'm working on, like, extending that kind of empathy to him. And the way that I can do that is basically by realizing that he has literally spent the episode hallucinating his father. So, like, he's clearly shaken by this. And, like, he's reverting or he's he's reaching for a coping mechanism that has helped him in the past, which is to shove everything down and quote unquote, deal with it later, which is code for never deal with it again. Try to never think about it again and drink it away later. But this has worked for him so far. He he does what he knows, which is to bury his feelings and emotions and never deal with them. Much the way John instills all of his, you know, uh, his, his plans and thoughts on his boys He's doing the same thing to Sam. And it's it's not malicious. It's not looking at Sam and realizing Sam's made a breakthrough and this breakthrough is going to cause us harm and I want it to end, which is what we as the audience see. And, you know, he, he forces Sam to bury his growth as well. Well, now that we know that Dean has ruined Sam's chance of growing, can we talk about Sam? I feel like on a surface level, like we really see that Sam's hell is made out of people who like question his humanity, which has been a theme for him. For a few seasons now. But I think that it's really about him losing his humanity. Not so much about people telling him that he's losing his humanity, but him feeling like, I think it's it's much more internal than it is external. I sort of want to back this up with the fact that like, we know that Dean is hallucinating and we know that Sam hallucinates Dean and the other patients telling him that like, he was the problem, not the demon blood, like the usual kind of thing that we've been hearing ever since Ruby told this to him at the end of season four. But I would actually argue that Sam's hallucination starts when he apologizes to Dr. Fuller, because no matter what we have to say about the way that this mental health institution is represented in this episode, at least up to this point, Dr. Fuller had always like made sure to humanize his patients. He doesn't like when Dean calls Sam crazy. Uh, He's advocating for Sam and Dean to have separate experiences in order to encourage them to grow as individuals. You know, all that kind of stuff. So for him to kind of go from that to saying things like, the look in your eyes when you came after me, it was like you were barely even human, like a man possessed. Like, this is literally 
what Sam fears the most, right? Like losing his humanity and being possessed by the devil. So I just feel like it's a very strong possibility that he had begun hallucinating already. Did not occur to me the potential that the apology with Dr. Fuller, because it does seem really weird. Like the entire scene has an air of like, I don't think someone would say those things to Sam. Like, in that scenario, if you had just attacked somebody and then gone to apologize to them, they would not, like, turn around and give you, like, a lesson. Like, it it felt so weird. As if Dr. Fuller has never had a patient attack him. You know, like, I cannot, I cannot believe this. Like, Like, somehow it didn't occur to me until just this moment, and you said it, that that was probably a hallucination. Like, whether he went and apologized and the aftermath or the whole thing was in his head, who knows? But... That was such a pointed comment that was so like, yes, it's passive, but it's very blamey. It was very like, you're an animal, you're a monster. You can resolve this, but you need to take the right steps because you're the bad thing. Like, really doesn't seem fitting, even though we've only seen Dr. Fuller for like 30 seconds as like an actual character at this point. But that makes... Oh my god, that makes so much more sense now. And so this is sort of where I want to get to my main point about Sam. Because Dean was able to like debrief and realize that what he had what he thought had been said to him was actually his own inner monologue. But Sam was never able to do that. Because like Dean was hallucinating his dad, right? So he he I think that he would automatically know that his father being dead, like he wasn't present. But like Sam hallucinated a person who was a part of the story, a part of like his experience in that institution. And so like, he can never be sure if what Dr. Fuller said to him was actually said to him or not. And I think that that is going to fuel his instability, not only in this episode, but perhaps in future episodes as well. Well, yeah, because at this point he thinks a medical professional who at this point he was starting to like, fully put like faith into was someone he could trust and told him that like the problem is you yes it still had the caveat of this instability can be overcome through proper medical attention and proper like you know psychiatric evaluation and like care but telling the person that they are a monster which seems very unprofessional in my books like that's gonna sit with him now and yes there was probably a great moment where he could have sat with Dean and discussed this moment and made the realization that it was probably all in his head and that he's not really a monster. But somebody took that away from him. And again, not maliciously, but damn it, Dean. Do we want to talk about that a little bit, like from Sam's perspective? Because we talked about Dean, but we haven't really talked about Sam at the end of the episode. For From my point of view and from what I see in Sam is... A level of realization, I mean, as much as it came from a bad place and possibly hallucinations that were designed to hurt him, he's at least realizing that he needs help and that he can't just, I think I brought it up in a previous episode where there's kind of this issue where there's like a, let's reach a status quo and just like, declare our intentions and hope that's enough. And Sam is at a point now where he has been given the information of like, the next step in your recovery is this. And being told that, like, we don't have time for that. Just live with that knowledge. Put it away. Too bad. Let's go. I think for me, what's really troubling here, and I wonder how much of that is narrative versus how much of that is critical, is, like, the way 
that the show talks about anger because Sam says that he's angry as, and like, you're right, you know, he's close to a breakthrough. He's like looking inward as to like why these things are happening. And he's linking it back to this anger that he feels. And like, he says that it comes from within him. And I, you know, I know that a lot of us have had like anger framed as like a bad or a dangerous emotion, but anger is an emotion and emotions are emotions and they're morally neutral. Sam's anger doesn't make him a terrible person. The actions that Sam chooses to take in order to channel his anger is what makes him the person he is for better or worse. And like, I'm sorry, but like, Sam feeling angry about his childhood and the way he was raised, absolutely normal. 100%. Anger is a totally valid response to injustice, uh, real or perceived. And what is more unjust than the kind of childhood that Sam and Dean have experienced? No, the fact that only Sam is feeling this much anger. I mean, I think Dean copes in his own ways and allows himself to be expressed in their own ways. But anger is how Sam manifests whether he likes it or not and it's a matter of learning how to properly channel it there you go so i think that like he's close to a realization but he like you said he doesn't really get there in this episode because the person in front of him is just not ready to have that conversation like he he would need to talk about that to somebody else essentially because, and again, I think, I think that this is really important because it comes back to what Dr. Fuller was saying that like, they need to have, they cannot be the end, the be all end all for each other all the time. They need to have those separate experiences, those separate people that they can reach to when they need it. Dean is not the person Sam should be turning to in this moment. It, it's great to have a friend like that or a brother like that who can listen to you, but ultimately that person should turn around to be able to tell you, I'm not a professional, but I know who we could find you one. Just somebody to listen at this point, right? Like That's something Dean can definitely learn to be better at is listening and giving Sam the room to speak. But I think what we're learning also here is Sam is at a point now where talking about it, the times he has been able to, the little time he's been given to like to speak his mind, don't always lead to where he needs to be. But the one time he speaks to a medical professional, even if it is in the guise of a possible hallucination, he starts to get put on the right track. I think this is a great example of why professional psychiatric support is so important to people who need it. But yes, Dean just listening would already be an amazing start. <laughs> the same way that Dean was able to get from Martin, like, no, son, that's not what's happening. Like, just, just somebody to tell Sam, like, hey, you know, like what you're feeling is normal. If you're having trouble finding ways to cope, then like there are ways, there are resources that we can reach out to. I feel like the, the next thing we need now is a fan fiction of a psychiatrist who works specifically in the supernatural universe dealing with hunters and ex-hunters or people who have dealt with the supernatural. Because I think there's a certain level of like how much you can tell a professional before they start going, uh-huh. Let me get the straight jacket. And I think Sam needs a more open person in this case. I don't know. Just side story. I guess he's some fun uh, fanfics in that uh, realm. Are we ready for critical time? So who was behind this episode? And I know you've already mentioned one of the writers. Was it the usual team? 
It's Andrew Dabb and Daniel Laughlin, and uh, it was directed by James L. Conway, and this is his last one for Supernatural. Aw. And do we have a list of what he's done before? Yes, he's done A Terrible Life, Fallen Idols, The Real Ghostbusters, and Sam Interrupted. I'm having a moment now. I'm trying to go through all four of those episodes. I remember more detail. Real Ghostbusters obviously clicks right away. Remind me, what was Fallen Idols again? It was the James Dean one. Oh, right. Okay. I'm not a bad track record. Um, again, I love this. Like, I, 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 I love that we've recognized it, but I hate that it keeps coming up. Is Davin Laughlin's ability to give us what I think are really good episodes, but with this like candy coating of just like intolerance. <laughs> yeah. Like if the two, like I feel like if the two of them just chose like the most like white toast like environment and characters to work with they could give us the best story but stop trying to be inclusive you're bad at it <laughs> uh. <laughs> sorry <laughs> I just love how this broke you like eventually I'm assuming with like I know those names do come back more and more and I think one of them even was a showrunner for a while if I'm not mistaken. Yes, Andrew Dabb does become a showrunner in the later seasons. Um so I think that that's why I've been paying particular attention to his work in these early seasons because I think that they do reveal a lot about about his outlook at the very least on these characters and how how he imagines them, how he understands them and I think that so far for me anyway, like his understanding of Dean has been, and particularly the boy's childhood as well, uh, has been illuminating for me. <laughs> well, I, I feel like I'll be really intrigued to see how he transitions from writing to show running. I think they are two very different arts and I'll be, I'm hopeful because like I said, as much of these episodes, I kind of like, we, we've been critical of the things that are worth being critical of. He has, the two of them had a pretty good hand at, development that at developing the characters so i'll be intrigued to see where that goes what's the entry in the hunter's journal today i'm glad you asked it happens every night i hear noises that i know are not there i awake and reach for the gun under my pillow i don't keep one there anymore as i don't trust myself but i still reach for it i know it's not real i know it's not there i've checked countless times I can feel the eyes peering into my room and staring at me, hungrily. I've paid hunters, psychics, priests, cultists, you name it. I've hired them to come cleanse, remove, clear out, or whatever it is they do. Some tell me I'm mad, and there's nothing. Those ones would be the ones who are correct. I know it's not real. Others would play the role and tell me it was killed or exercised, and I don't believe them, but maybe it'll trick my mind into stopping this feeling. Tonight was no different. I heard it like always, climbing along the ceiling and down the walls towards my head. But this time, I was able to ignore it. I ignored the breathing on my cheek. I ignored the sound of its jaw moving and grinding. I ignored all of it. The next morning I woke, well rested for once, for the first time in months. It might finally be over. This fear finally conquered. That was until I turned back to look at the bed and saw the black footprints and claw marks leading from the ceiling down to the wall near inches from my pillow.
Oh no. <laughs> oh, Drew. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> I don't like it. <laughs> I've been listening to a lot more horror podcasts. The I can tell. I don't me. like it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you won't like what else I have planned for the next few episodes. <laughs> Let's get on with my thoughts. Okay, so a little while ago, uh, social media user Rupert Gaze, uh, who we also know as Jen, uh, who recorded the episode on the art in the green room with Rochelle and I, she asked Supernatural fans on TikTok what episode of Supernatural felt like horror to them, which I guess is really on theme with that amazing Hunter's journal entry that you just gave us. The preamble to the question is basically saying that, like, originally Kripke wanted Supernatural to be a horror show. And I think that we can agree already in season five that, like, it's not really that anymore, if it ever was, but that it does use some horror tropes in some episodes. And I guess I would argue that this episode uses horror tropes really well. Because this entire episode is about people in a mental health care facility who are being basically held there against their will, let's be clear, who are seeing a monster killing their friends one by one, telling the people who are supposed to be caring for them and not being believed. This is really classic psychological horror. Because of my own preferences, I'm not really well-versed in the horror genre, uh, particularly that kind of horror, because it's incredibly effective on me. Like, it is a literal recurring nightmare of mine that I'm screaming at people that something bad is coming and no one moves. It does remind me of the movie Gaslight, uh, which is the 1944 movie uh, from which we get the term gaslighting. So if that's the kind of horror that you're into, that might be worth looking into in terms of like film history and whatnot. Oh, wow. I didn't. So first of all, great. And I uh, did recall seeing that TikTok and I don't remember at the time if an episode came to mind. Well, keep that in mind, because that might be the question in our Impala talk for this week. I will shut up. And on that case, let's go on to more of our community and what they have to share. <laughs> this week, we have a message from Liv. Before we listen to it, we want to remind you to send us a three minute voicemail to respond to anything we discussed today. You can use the recording app on your phone and just email us the recording at carryingwayward at gmail.com. We also want to remind you that Mary and I will be answering the question, what do you think is the scariest Supernatural episode so far, for our Roadhouse patrons and coffee supporters on our Impala talk. So I just want to do a quick disclaimer before we read this message. I apologize sincerely to our listeners. I did not note which voicemail and message was sent first. Usually I'm very meticulous about that. I have lost control. <laughs> of my time and of everything since September. So I just kind of like threw all of the voicemails into a folder and didn't identify when we had received them. So they might be out of order. And I sincerely apologize for that. If you haven't heard your voicemail and you sent it a while ago, it certainly might be coming. I'm so sorry, but just kind of keep that in mind. And I will be rectifying the situation as we move forward. All right, so I'm going to read the message from Liv. Hey guys, I'm a new listener and I've just made it to episode 1011 
of season one. You have no idea how hype I was to find a good podcast for this show. The episode I'm sure that my thoughts or response I felt I needed to give you guys was the asylum episode because it wasn't answered, as of my knowledge, in that discussion or in any future ones so far. And maybe you, we have totally different opinions. I believe it was Mary who asked something along the lines of when does faith become obedience and when does lack of faith become rebellion? And I have to say my instant thought was abuse. Dean is obvious in his obedience, and I saw it from the start. It's almost blind obedience to John, in a way that's similar to abuse victims following everything their abuser does, children especially. There have been a few instances we can see evidence of this when Dean knows. Making him listen in the bug episode won't work. Right. Very true. And John expecting Dean to act like a soldier under his command. But when Dean and Sam both travel back and meet the younger versions of their parents in the doorway, you can see Sam is awestruck almost by both parents. But Dean quits smiling at Mary, who had answered the door, and stood up straight like a soldier would when John came. Dean completely closed himself off and got super tense when seeing John. There was also a conversation about the time when Sam ran away as a kid. And Dean says, I looked for you everywhere. And when dad got back and he trails off with a look of terror. And I think that we all know what that said about John's reaction to Dean not doing his job. Dean's childhood speaks of getting violence in terms of physical and emotional in his childhood, and this conditioned him into a place of obedience to John, knowing that they were helping people and keeping Sammy safe and getting the thing that killed mom. Sam, on the other hand, comes from a place not of physical abuse, but of neglect. John was never there. Dean always was. Dean was Sam's mother, father, brother, friend, and protector. John's lack of being there fostered a clear sense of abandonment and lack of faith that John would care or be there. So that turned to, if he doesn't care, why do I care and listen to what he says? At this time, I can't remember if Sam had instances that spoke of abuse from John or hinted at it, but I do know Dean definitely does. Sam's portion wasn't as long as Dean, but I could go round and round with how much I hate both Mary and John Winchester. I love the podcast and I can't wait to catch up on your latest episodes. I hope nothing there was too much of a spoiler, but I just had to add my thoughts. Great job and carry on. It's been a while since I think a voicemail or message has come in from a new listener like that who's like, still catching up and like getting to know our style and like already so oh, like just my heart's a flutter i love it live i know it'll be a while before you hear this message from us unless you're really binging fast but and as someone who's binged an entire three season show in a day i've been there uh thank you so much for the voicemail thank you so much for joining us on this journey and i hope we can make your time uh going through the show again uh, an enjoyable one despite some of the darker matter we touch on including this voice mail unfortunately but yeah, you know what? It's it's something we have touched on a bit in the past, but I don't mind going back into is it really is. It really is emblematic of the kind of abuse that John had put Dean through. But there's something that came up in my mind while listening to you read this to us. Adam felt like a fresh start for John. And I think in some ways, Sam was kind of the fresh start from Dean. He tried to be better and maybe for him better was just not being there as much because he had realized how bad he could be or thinking that Dean was the better option for taking care of him or just trying to be more fatherly to Sam in some ways. Ultimately, he failed miserably with both his first two boys. And I mean, Adam will never really know for sure. At least I don't think so. 
but it really feels like I don't know. It, I don't know if John ever had the self reflection to see what he had done to Dean, what he had turned Dean into, uh, especially how young it would have been for him to like change his ways with Sam so early. But it really like you you hit the nail on the head there, Liv. It really is the difference between like being so afraid of John that you treat him like an infallible king versus Sam who was so distant from him because he felt like he was so detached from him and Dean was truly his like role model that re- reporting to John in a way that Dean would made him feel like, oh, he doesn't deserve this of me. Liv, thank you so much for your message. Like like Drew, I'm so excited to know that like you are going through all of our episodes because honestly, like there's a lot of them. So <laughs> pace yourself. <laughs> I agree with you. And I think that there's a lot of insights to be had from what, from this, from this message, particularly also like juxtaposed with like this particular episode for some reason, again, like completely random because they're not in order, the voicemails or anything. I think one thing that is interesting right now, and it's taking me a second to kind of put my thoughts together here, because I want to be careful in how I phrase this. But something that's going to be interesting going forward, particularly when it comes to the fandom understanding of John Winchester, is the arrival of the prequel of Supernatural, The Winchesters, which centers specifically, but not exclusively, John and Mary Winchester. And I think I want to be careful because there's currently like a lot of really hotly debated things specifically with regards to John Winchester. And I know that some people also throw in Mary there, but that's a bit more contested. So I'm I'm going to focus on John for the purposes of this. Focusing on John's backstory makes him automatically more likable. We understand him a little bit better and we're uh, asked to show empathy for him. And I don't think that those are bad things per se. I want to be really clear. But I do think that different people get different things out of these characters. And so some people will really enjoy watching John like kind of descend into the character that he becomes in Supernatural, going from like this very sweet, gentle person into like this terrible human being this trash can of a man basically (laughs) and supernatural and some people just can't engage with the media at all and that includes myself because I have a really and, and that is entirely personal I have a really hard time engaging with any media that requires me to show empathy towards people like John it just hits too close to home. I just wrote a little bit on Twitter about it for those who want to know more about it. But I guess what I just want us to focus on is that watching the Winchesters, not watching the Winchesters does not make you a good or a bad person. Empathizing with John, not empathizing with John does not make you a good or a bad person. This is fiction. We're literally in this in order to kind of like get something out of it to understand ourselves better to try to work out situations with characters where like nobody virtually nobody gets hurt right and i've talked about this before so i think that it it's important to address on this podcast because we continually you know quote unquote shit on john winchester and i know that eventually some people are going to be like well he wasn't always like this and we're going to start getting those comments of like you know, John wasn't always like this. You should definitely address that. And 
for many reasons. For now, we're sticking with supernatural. We're aware of the Winchesters, very aware of them, uh, but we're not talking about that piece of media this second. So I guess we're just going to have to continue to look at John the way that he's presented in Supernatural. Uh, so I just, I guess I just wanted to address that. No, well put and well said. And I think it is important for us to remember that as well. I know myself, I'm not watching it. I'm avoiding it as much as I can. The little things have come in here and there from social media because. Social, what did you call it? Cultural osmosis? Cultural, Cultural osmosis? osmosis. I love it. Oh, yeah, sure. there you go. Same. So yeah, I mean, like my point stands, John was a terrible father to these two in different ways. I, I'm not going to sit here and say one was better or worse than the other, but both had their negative effects on these two amazing other, these, these, these two children effectively at the time and how they, you know, come to deal with authority. And, uh, but ultimately I'm going to say an amazing voice, uh, voicemail, an amazing message to live. Thank you so much for joining us again. And thank you for becoming part of this. All right, let's head on over to our reflection and call to action. Let's do it. I mean, honestly, like if I'm just going to cut to the chase, like I think that my call to action is to accept temporary instances of instability in my life. I'm a firm believer that like balance is not a static thing. It's, it's, it's always weighing in one direction or the other. And that's like, that is literally balance, right? Um, so balance will never feel like what society tell, tells us that balance is supposed to look like, like a perfectly checked daily habits and like our homes always being picture perfect and picture ready. Balance is accepting that like sometimes I will experience instability and to know that eventually like this, the, the metaphorical scales will come back to more of an equilibrium, but to kind of accept that there's always a little bit of movement within that equilibrium and that balance and that instability is normal and uh, temporary. As mentioned previously, I am living through a pretty unstable time in my life. And I think it's an important thing to remember as well. Uh, but that also uh, really, really well links to my uh, reflection called action this week. You may recall, and you actually were, I, I recently re-editing the episode and hearing your words again gave me a big smile was a few weeks ago, I had mentioned my uh, seeking medical attention for my ankle and how I'm not just going to live with it. And again, it's part of my, it's part of my multi-step plan of being in my new home. Step one is home. Step two is job. Step three is you know, the things I want to deal with get dealt with. So on top of finding a proper medical professional to make sure my ankle is healing properly and I can live on it in a much better way and not find myself limping up and down the stairs every like third or fourth night, I have decided that this episode, it might be incredibly blunt and obvious. You know, I used to see a therapist and I found it really helpful and it just stopped fitting my schedule because working retail, which was a whole other bucket of worms, uh, back to that weird metaphor, I've decided to keep sticking with this episode. Um, but I've decided, I've decided that on top of a medical professional for my ankle, I'm going to be seeking one out for my brain as well. That's awesome. <laughs> and that's a perfect way to end the episode. Instability on a path to slightly more stability. You've been listening to Carrying Wayward, a supernatural podcast produced by Rochelle Castellano, hosted by Mary Vigoureux and myself, Drew Shulman. Thank you to our Bunker patrons, Katira, Michelle, and Elle, for their generous support. This week, we'd like to thank Liv for her message. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube using at Carrying Wayward, and leave us a rating and a review on your podcast service of choice. 
And don't forget to join our coffee or Patreon for perks and extra content. You can use the link in all of our social media bios or go directly to carryingwayward.com. Carry on our wayward friends. Mwah, mwah. Oh yeah, it's me. Oh, I forgot. <laughs> I was like, Drew, come on, <laughs> get us started. It hasn't been that long. <laughs> no, I know. I'm sorry. <laughs> Apparently it has for me. <laughs>